Hello. This is the Transformation of European Politics series. My name is Tiger Bushadi, and I am a political scientist at the University of Zurich. In this podcast series, I talk to other political scientists about a publication of theirs that can help us better understand the transformation of European politics in the past 20 years. We link these academic works to broader debates within political science, but also discuss how they relate to current political developments. In this episode, I talked to Daniel Sieblatt, who's Eton Professor of the Science of Government at Harvard University. We discussed his 2018 book, How Democracies Die, which is co-authored with Stephen Levitsky. The book investigates how authoritarian leaders within democracies erode democratic norms and institutions, and how democratic regimes eventually turn into autocratic ones. It argues that political parties play a key role for the stability of democracy as they act as gatekeepers against authoritarians. When political parties fail to do that and authoritarians get elected, they have many opportunities to erode democratic safeguards, even while staying within the law. Our conversation also focuses on the role that conservative parties play more generally for the stability of democracy. Historically, a party family whose compromising capacity was essential for democratic stability, many of these parties today have allowed radical right rhetoric into the democratic mainstream. Especially the US Republican Party has radicalized, and currently a real threat exists for the stability of liberal democracy in the US. If you're interested in Daniel and his research, you can follow him on Twitter under at DZBlood or visit his website. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, Daniel. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Great. Great to be here. So today we're going to talk about your book, How Democracies Die, which is co-authored with Stephen Levitsky. And in the book, you investigate how democratic regimes turn into more authoritarian forms of government and what institutions and mechanisms usually prevent democracies from this fate. Before we talk about the book in more detail, um, I just wanted to ask you, what was the motivation for writing this book? Yeah, good question. So we uh, originally thought, we originally started working together, Steve and I. Well, we, first of all, I should say we teach together. We both teach at Harvard. We've taught together. We've taught courses, graduate course on democracy and democratization and regime change. And so we've always been in conversations with uh, about these uh, types of topics, although, you know, Steve focuses on Latin America and I have primarily focused on Europe. Um, and so I think it was during the summer and fall of 2016, right about the time, you know, four years ago from now, you know, uh, um, where the election was unfolding and uh, Donald Trump for the first time was talking about not accepting the results of elections of the upcoming election. And so uh, Steve and I really kind of saw these echoes with stuff we had talked about and read in our graduate courses together, uh, Juan Lins in particular. Um, and so we uh, wrote a couple of op-eds together. And then over the course of the fall, we were really a kind of combination of, of being frightened of how things were unfolding in the U.S., um, but also uh, slightly irritated, I think, of kind of what we regarded at the time as kind of alarmist accounts that, you know, tyranny was around the corner. And so we thought we should really draw upon our knowledge and tr to try to help understand the American situation. But again, I guess really the overarching motivation was really a sense that people weren't taking the threat seriously enough or, or putting it into the right scope. And so that's what our motivation was. And then in the book, of course, you you analyze these changes from democratic to more authoritarian rule, but not in a form that many people might think about when they hear this first, that is like a coup. But you fo focus on these different processes of erosion and subversion. So how do most democracies die today? Well, yeah, that's that's exactly right. I mean, there's really been a change um, and, and during the Cold War. Most democracies died through military coups. Uh, since the end of the Cold War, uh, this is no longer the case. Uh, as elections became more widespread, the way that democracies die today uh, is at the ballot box. So elected politicians get elected, 
uh, and then once in office, attack democratic institutions. And this usually takes place over a longer time frame. So as a result, it's it's less visible. And again, I guess that was part of our motivation in writing the book was to try to identify a set of benchmarks so that on the one hand, citizens and observers uh, wouldn't react in overly alarmist th- a way to things, but also to, to kind of have a sense of when when the red flags should go up, that one should be nervous. Mm-hmm. And when should the red flags go up? So what do these people do in office that should alarm citizens, observers? Yeah, well, I guess there's two there's two different points at which one should pay attention. One is before somebody gets into office. And actually, there are kind of alarm bells that go off ahead of time. And so if you see a politician, so we draw here on Juan Lenz's, uh, he had this notion of a litmus test that you can identify politicians ahead of time. Um, uh, you know, you can dislike a politician, you can disagree with them on policy grounds, but unless they kind of uh, test positive on the litmus test, one shouldn't really be worried about them being author- potential authoritarian. So before they get elected, the, the, the kind of elements of the litmus test are, you know, do politicians uh, accept the basic democratic order? Uh, do they uh, condone or encourage violence? Um, do they... Uh, g- reject their opposition as illegitimate in some way? Do they reject the opposition in some way, like uh, kind of agents of foreign powers or disloyal? Um, and uh, and then the, the the final dimension that we talk about is, do they attack civil liberties, sort of the media and so on? So just rhetorically, one can already be worried at that point. Uh, not all not all politicians score polit you know d- potentially dangerous politicians score positive on all of these dimensions. Uh, in the case of the United States, Donald Trump did score positive, so he was a clear case of somebody who we should have known better uh, to begin with that he was going to be a threat. But then once so that that's ahead of time. Uh, once once they're in office, then politicians who score positive on this litmus test, and sometimes even those who don't. Um, you know, it, it often come to power kind of at running against the establishment. Uh, that's usually kind of how these guys come into power and they're usually men. Um, but then once in office, they seem to follow this kind of playbook that people often talk about an authoritarian playbook. I mean, I don't think there is an authoritarian playbook, but in response to kind of resistance to them, they sort of fall into a certain pathway. Um, and so, Kind of the, th- the things that we've identified, and, and no particular sequence, but things that we've identified, we kind of use a metaphor drawn from football, where where they kind of try to capture the referees, and so you take the part of the neutral arbiters of this of kind of of normal politics, so judges, the course of apparatus, judicial institutions, and try to to capture it, um, uh, to to. to kind of make sure that they're on your side. And so you kind of, so that, that's one thing we could say a lot more about that, but just very briefly, the second, the second two things that, um, politicians, that politicians do once in office is they try to tilt the playing field in a kind of more permanent way. So change electoral rules that entrench the, the kind of incumbent. Um, and then, uh, the third thing they do is go after their opponents, um, through, you know, legal means, sometimes illegal means, but often all of this stuff is legal. And I guess that's one of the, the points of our book is to highlight that once politicians are in office, they can continue to abide by the law, but violate de- basic democratic norms to try to entrench themselves in power. And so what, what was so striking as we wrote, you know, we wrote this in 2017. So right in the first year of the Trump presidency, and was really drawing on other cases around the world, Venezuela, under Chavez, um, uh, Victor Orban's Hungary, um, uh, uh, and so on. And, but what we've sort of discovered in a way is that as over the last several years, we've seen a lot of this uh, unfolding in the United States as well. So one thing I was wondering about with these authoritarian leaders, and maybe that's a question that's difficult to answer, is with the ones where you didn't necessarily expect it when they came into office. I guess Orban is an example, or Fujimori, I think you also uh, discuss in the book. With those who change in office, is are they just leaders that were better at hiding their authorita- authoritarian tendencies? Or do you think power, the, the institutions that they, they were in, then turned them authoritarian? Yeah, Orban in particular, I think, is a really is a clear case of this because he had a long track record in politics. Fujimori in, in Peru was somebody who was not had no political record, and so it was much harder to figure out what his 
what his kind of uh, orientation to politics would be. Um, he had been a university rector and was, you know, somebody who was not particularly interested in politics even. Uh, but Viktor Orban is somebody who had a long his track record and, you know, of course, famously had been a liberal and, and supported by Soros in the 90s to go study at Oxford. Um, but then over time, tr- transformed himself and lo- you know, was voted out of office once and then came back in. And that second time round seemed to have been transformed. And those who those who know him best and know his rule best, uh, you know, uh, you know, those are the people I rely on. They, you know, they, they say things such as, you know, even early in his early days, the way he dealt with his, uh, rivals for, for power within his own party, there was indications that this is somebody who, you know, was going to play fast and loose with democratic norms and rules. But I, but you're right that it's much harder to see it. So I guess the way to think about this is that this litmus test is not perfect. I mean, not everybody scores positive on who ends up being dangerous, but usually if you do score or positive about you are dangerous. I mean, it's actually hard to think of somebody who doesn't meet that criteria. So, it's, so it's not a perfect litmus test. But um, the, these the kinds of figures you're talking about are are much trickier to to deal with. Um, but the good news is often they they're as authoritarian as advertised. Then one the the main part maybe of the book really on really focuses on safeguards that democracies usually have against authoritarians and one main argument about the book uh, of the book is about political parties so your argument is that some parties especially established mainstream parties should serve really as gatekeepers to authoritarians can you explain that in a little more detail to me yeah so i mean given that given that uh politicians come to power potentially dangerous politicians come to power at the ballot box then this really raises a paradox for anybody who's de- committed to democratic rules. Because if you see somebody who's dangerous on the horizon, you know, what do you do? I mean, you, you can't ban them, you know, if they're, if they're abiding by basic democratic rules, uh, but you think that potentially they might be a threat. You, ha- I mean, there's really very little one can do if one subscribes to democratic norms. And this is an old dilemma, like going back to Weimar. In fact, you know, I think there were people at the time who sort of thought, you know, Hitler was a threat, but didn't quite know how to to deal with this. Um, and so what, uh, what we sort of point out, I guess, partly drawing on the US case, but also interwar European cases, is that political parties themselves, um, are often the, the gatekeepers. I mean, in the sense that candidates come up through political parties. So there's, there's two ways, I guess, parties can serve as gatekeepers. One, uh, if you have somebody who, who comes to, uh, one pathway is sort of if somebody comes to power th- through an established political party. You know, so you can you can think here, I guess, of, of Donald Trump within the Republican Party, um, and sort of takes over the party. The party leaders themselves uh, should be able to identify the potential risks and use the instruments that they have at their disposal to kind of prevent that person from taking leadership of a party. So um, that that's kind of been a historical way that this has happened in the United States. There's been in our book we account we provide accounts of. Figures like Henry Ford, who were who wanted to run for president, who was really gave lots of signs of being an authoritarian in the 1920s, and the party leaders really basically thwarted him, or he was he became convinced that he had no chance of winning the nomination, um, and so that that's been transformed in the U.S. in recent years, where it's become harder for parties to become be gatekeepers of people using their own machinery to come to power, and I could I could say more about that, but let me just first say on the the second kind of way that parties serve as gatekeepers is in a kind of multi-party system where uh, a new party comes along. And this is kind of more fitting in the European setting, I would say. Uh, A new party comes along that is a threat to democracy um, and that seems to be have ambiguous or outright uh, uh, positions antithetical to democratic norms. Then the question is, what should the mainstream parties do? Because usually in a setting like this, you have a party that's not gaining, you know, a majority of the vote, but rather, you know, 10, 15, 20% of the vote. Um, and, you know, they, they're not going to get into power unless they form a coalition or they collaborate with some, some of the mainstream parties. And so the question then becomes, what do you do as a mainstream party? And there's a big debate, of course, in comparative politics about, you know, should you, uh, sort of absorb them and normalize them? Should you have a hard line against them? And it's, it's a, it's a really difficult decision often, you know, when you come down to concrete cases. Um, but, you know, in general, I think the bias should be to assume that if a party shows signs of not being committed to democratic rules, to have a hard line and under no conditions form coalitions with them. 
Um, so, uh, you know, again, I think the, the interwar examples are, are very clear cut examples of that. Um, in the contemporary world, of course, it starts to get trickier because often we don't know, is the party really a threat to democracy? And there's some debate about this. But uh, I think it's a risk that's really not worth taking. <clears throat> You've just mentioned it already in the book. Also, you argue that um, it's become more difficult for political parties to have this gatekeeping function. Uh, can you explain to me why it's become more difficult? Well, in... In the U.S., it's become more difficult. Um, and again, as I, as I said, there's there's a long history of demagogues who wanted to be president. You know, so one 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 of the points of our book is to really highlight that the U.S. has. I mean, there's there was a kind of often been a tendency, less so today, but there's been a tendency to sort of think there was a golden age of American democracy where everything just worked beautifully and smoothly, and then only recently Donald Trump has come along. But the reality is, there's been a kind of continuous stream of sort of demagogic, authoritarian-leaning politicians. Uh, George Wallace in the 1960s, a segregationist governor. Uh, I already mentioned Henry Ford. Um, uh, Charles Lindbergh, the famous pilot, sort of considered running for president at one point. There were people pushing him to run for president anyway, who was a sympathizer to the Nazis uh, in the 30s. And so there's always been these kinds of figures, but parties have always been able to do a really good job of keeping them out. In fact, have a perfect record of keeping these sorts of figures out. I mean, maybe Nixon would be the one exception, although even he was sort of harder to identify ahead of time, I think. And and w previously, I mean, before 1972, um, the way that parties selected their candidates was very different than today. Before 1972, although there were some primaries, basically the primaries were not binding. They were sort of beauty competitions as they were often referred to just to sort of see how popular a candidate was to kind of gain some momentum if you're an outsider. But the, at the end of the day, the way presidential candidates were selected by parties uh, was by the party leaders themselves getting together at convention times uh, in the infamous smoke-filled back room and hotels often near the convention centers where party leaders would get together. They would discuss who would be a good potential candidate who who might, uh, you know, who would have a good chance of winning and kind of implicitly in all of these discussions is, you know, if somebody's dangerous and psychologically unstable, they're not going to pick him. And so party leaders pick the candidates uh, and would sort of impose the leader, the their selection on the on the party. Um, uh, after so that that's not a I mean, it's easy. It's kind of easy in retrospect to kind of say, oh, well, that was a pretty good system. The downside, of course, it had some serious legitimacy problems. And so um, and that really came to a head in 1968 in the 1968 Democratic Convention, um, where there was a real uh, fight over the Vietnam War. And uh, Lind when Lyndon Johnson decided not to uh, rerun run for president for a second term, his vice president, Hubert Humphrey, who was associated with the, with the Vietnam War as well, very much an establishment figure. Uh, was essentially imposed upon the party against a lot of the party grassroots. And so there was these dramatic scenes in the Chicago Convention Center of um, police coming in, beating up delegates of the party's own, the party's own delegates. Um, and so these kind of brutal scenes uh, led to a, a major series of reforms in which primaries became binding. And so voters now had a much more direct say, which is the system we live with today. Now, that's certainly a more open system, more democratic system. The downside of it... Um, is that uh, essentially, and at the time, political scientists warned of this, that it opens the door potentially for somebody to come along who's who has no political experience, who if they can kind of sweep the primaries can come to come to uh, take the nomination very quickly. And that's essentially what what Donald Trump did in 2015, 2016. And um, it seems to me without knowing any numbers on this, that this direct type of selection of it A party leaders or B candidates for certain offices like presidential candidates has also become more common in Europe. Thinking of the, uh, the French Republicans in the last presidential election when this was actually then, uh, there was a big, big surprise about the, the, the candidate they picked. So do you think that these developments are dangerous for democracy or is that too strong of a word? Yeah, it's, it's, I spent a lot of time thinking about this in a comparative context. I mean, so it's similar, you could tell a similar, the story you just told about France, uh, and the German SPD, uh, the most recent, uh, pr process where they went through this long process of having, uh, candidate, uh, regional conferences and, and they ended up selecting, uh, part of these co-leaders of the SPD who are certainly not a threat to democracy. I would say neither of the, the, the heads of the SPD are a threat to democracy. But the question is, do you come up with the best candidates through this process? 
Um, and I think it's really, it's a double-edged sword is the kind of way I would think about it, is that on the one hand, parties, um, the, the selection of the candidates is more legitimate um, because candidates have been selected by the party base. Uh, but it does, I think, run the risk that it does open the door for potential demagogues to come along. I think that's right. Or, or very bad candidates in some instances. That's not to say that the, the old system picked perfect candidates. I mean, there's been many, like, you know, duds of candidates selected in the past. Um, uh, so, you know, it's, it's a mixed bag. I mean, I, I do think, I mean, the tricky, the tricky point, I mean, this is probably the least popular part of our book. Every time Steve and I have gone around in public and given talk, we say, you know, oh, you know, parties, party leaders should have more say in picking candidates. And people really don't like this idea. It sounds like, oh, how can you say you're an advocate of democracy if you're saying this? And I think, I think one point that I would really make is that, and again, this is controversial in some quarters, but is to say that, you know, the, our criteria of democracy apply to, uh, should apply to general elections in particular. It's, it's less critical, I think, for an internal party selection process. Um, you know, so the question is, how does a party select its own candidates? That's, that's, um, and a kind of well-functioning democracy is one in which you have hot, hotly fought elections between parties and their candidates. Um, and in some ways, the, the process of, op- of opening the, the door to primaries, while it looks more democratic, often is not more democratic. I mean, that's sort of the, the myth I kind of would like to explode. I mean, so, you know, in the primary process in the United States, for instance, is, is highly undemocratic. I mean, it kind of has the appearance of democracy because people are voting and you even have these caucuses and so on in Iowa. But it's number one, you have very low voter turnout. Um, uh, number two, so you really only have activists participating. And uh, number two, the sequence of states in which this happens is sort of ar- totally arbitrary, you know, and so candidates get momentum at certain key points. And, and if you reverse, you know, through the dice and reverse the sequence, you'd get a totally different candidate each time. And so it's a, it's a, it's a electoral process. And as, you know, any student of political science knows, you know, electoral processes and systems generate different results depending on the process. And so it's just a different way of selecting candidates. You have a broader selectorate, I guess, and then just the party leaders. So again, that in that sense, it's more democratic. But it does, I guess, you know, I think the the danger, if there is a danger to democracy, is that it does open the door for uh, demagogic uh, politicians who, even if party leaders know that person's a threat, can't do anything about it. And again, I mean, the, the kind of clearest case of this is 2016. I'm not saying we should go back to the old system. I want to make clear. I mean, we, we got, you know, Barack Obama out of this rather than Hillary Clinton. And probably without a primary process, we wouldn't have had it. So I, I guess the best way I can think about it is that it's a double-edged sword. And so the real challenge is to think of ways of drawing on the best of the old system and as well as the newer system. And in the, in the U.S., actually, we've had something like that until recently where there is a kind of system of super dele- what so-called superdelegates where party party leaders have a voice as well as uh voters in general and just to, just as a kind of final comparative point i mean you know so europeans looking at this will might say well this sounds like you know you know, i'm not a big fan of democracy but you have to remember compare this system in the us where anybody can vote you often have open primaries not only do you not have to be a party member you don't even have to be somebody who leans in the same direction of the party. You can vote in these primaries. I mean, it's incredibly open. You know, in the European setting where you have party, you know, members of parliament as well as paid party members voting, that seems to be a reasonable thing. So I think in a lot of ways, the European models, as different as some of them may are from each other, kind of fall more in the kind of ballpark of what I think is a, is a, is a kind of more optimal system. A second factor you focus on in the book for healthy and stable democracies are democratic norms. So not necessarily the written formal rules in the the constitution, but more informal rules and procedures uh, that democratic politicians follow. Can you explain to me why they are so important for democracy? Yeah, norms are important because... We can't devise any uh, written rules that uh, encompass every possible situation in life. I mean, we all know this in every part of our any, every part of our lives. There's always written rules which matter a lot, but in any social interaction, unwritten rules matter as well. Um, and when it comes to constitutions, um, the written constitution again matters a lot. 
Um, but often an un, a whole set of unwritten rules of behavior, political behavior, um, guiding the, the behavior of politicians in particular matter a lot too. And these aren't written down anywhere in a constitution or in any kind of legal, uh, legal book. So especially in a setting where a constitution is short. So in the United States, the U.S. Constitution is an extremely short document. Um, a lot was left unstated. And so uh, the, the the rest has been filled in through uh, through law, but also through unwritten rules. And so you know what, something that people sometimes forget is you know in the in the U.S. Constitution, there's no mention of the word political party. So let's say unlike the German Constitution, which provides a kind of special legal status for political parties, there's not no mention in the U.S. Constitution of political parties. And so this is something that developed informally initially. I mean, there's now legal protections and so on for parties, but there's not, but, but there's a whole set of unwritten rules as well. Uh, but continuing through today, again, to use the U.S. example, I mean, the, the U.S. president, uh, as, as we've seen in the last uh, couple of years, it has under the constitution has incredible powers of power of pardon. The president can pardon whoever he or she wants, whenever he or she wants, um, for any, for any reason, um, the, the the president if doesn't doesn't like how the legislature is dealing with uh, his legislation he can rule by executive order essentially you know he draws upon his own lawyers and can come up with any rationale to rule by executive order uh, the Congress is incredibly powerful under the Constitution the Congress the Senate has the power to approve judicial nominations and cabinet appointments of the president and there's no requirement that they kind of defer to the president. They could block every single nomination if they wanted to. And so all of the elements are in place, given the U.S. Constitution, if everybody pushes to the max, uh, to the letter of the law, to have a completely dysfunctional system. Uh, and in fact, you know, the U.S. Constitution was adopted, like I guess about two-thirds of it, it's essentially plagiarized in Argentina um, in the uh, late 19th century. And uh you know the U.S. So it's a very similar constitution, and rather than kind of a hundred years of stability, you had an incredibly long period of instability in Argentinian history, which shows you it's not the written words on the page that matter. What often, I mean, that matters, but in addition to that, what matters are these informal rules that develop uh, around it. So that that's why the why norms matter. Not every, you know, some norms matter than other more than other others, though. Um, and so, you know, kind of that was one of the tasks of our book was to kind of clarify which norms we think really are the ones to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. You've already mentioned a potential criticism of the um, idea of democracy that you that you present in the book. And as you focus on gatekeepers, on norms and maybe even traditions. So is it a fair assessment to say this is a somewhat elitist or even conservative perception of what democracy should be? And doesn't democracy maybe need a bit of anti-elitism, even a bit of populism maybe? Yeah, well, the, I, the norms, I mean, I guess I would disagree with that in the sense that I don't think that the norms that we are talking about are in any way elitist. I mean, the norms that were the, norm, the norms that we highlight as being particularly important are one a norm of mutual toleration, where where political opponents uh, treat each other, treat rivals as competitors and not as enemies. Um, you know, it's uh, when you you know when you hear Donald Trump talking about Black Lives Matter uh, movements as as a threat to. Uh, as a threat to American nationhood, um, that's an, that's an example of violating that. And so I wouldn't say that, uh, I wouldn't say that by advocating for the political rights of Black Lives Matter or politicians, the civil rights movement, for instance, that that makes one, uh, uh elitist in some way. I mean, I think a, a norm of mutual toleration is a precondition of, of democracy. Um, and without that, without, without the kind of accepting of, opponents as um, rivals and just treating them as enemies, you can't have, you can't have opposition. You can't have, and that, this is really a relatively new notion in, in world history. I mean, I think in the 18th century, the, the ultimate elitists, the Federalist Party in the, the time of the revolution had no understanding of this. And they regarded Thomas Jefferson as a subversive and as kind of a, as trying to advocate for a front, new French revolution in the United States. And so it was, it was the development of the norm 
of mutual toleration, which has allowed for the emergence of, let's say, social democratic parties, the emergence of green parties, and the emergence of any political party or group that as long as it abides by democratic norms, it's fair game. They can not only compete, but they can win uh, power and govern. And, and uh, you know, it doesn't matter how much one disagrees with them. So I think that's really actually cr- really critical. The second norm that we talk about is a norm of forbearance, which is a norm of self-restraint. Um, and so this is sort of the idea that you don't utilize the full power um, of the, uh, granted to you by the law in all circumstances. So in other words, just because you're the president, you have the power to pardon doesn't mean you pardon all your best friends. Um, they, there's a restraint placed on that. So again, I, there, and I think in no way is that elitist. I, I mean, I guess the, you know, one might imagine we, we could be saying, oh, well, one needs to not make demands and one shouldn't push for policy demands that are, that are, that seem extreme or something. That's not at all. I mean, extreme policy extremism is, is not, uh, has, has no, is sort of runs at cross purposes to this discussion. This is very much more kind of procedural, uh, description of how, a democratic system persists and endures despite heated disagreements. And in fact, how having these norms in place allows for more radical policy change to take place um, is the is the way I think about it. So uh, policy extremism is uh, okay or even good for democracy as long as it does not turn into an uh, and it, 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 you're turning the competitor into an enemy. Yeah, I mean, I guess policy extremism, by, by definition, isn't necessarily good for democracy. Depends on what the policy is, but it's not necessarily bad. I mean, what what's considered extreme in one era may become moderate in another. I mean, so um, you know, so I think you know, in the in the context of the U.S., you know, um, you know, initially, you know, you know, Bernie Sanders and the kind of left wing of the Democratic Party pushing for uh, um, single payer health care may be regarded some as extreme, but in no way represents a threat to democracy. In fact, you know, maybe facilitates it in some way by providing social rights to to citizens. But you know, if one didn't subscribe to the notion of mutual toleration, it would be much easier as a political elite to say. Oh, look, this is beyond the bounds. We're not even going to listen to this. Um, so one has to judge the policy based on, you know, its its own merits. Um, and uh, but one, I think, needs to subscribe to kind of basic uh, accepting of one's rivals as legitimate. I think where it starts to get tricky is kind of in an arena where time horizons are shortened. So in emergency settings. So, for instance, like environmental climate change um kind of policy. So if one thinks that, you know, we only have, you know, 10 years or 15 years or whatever to address the immediate climate crisis, and you have politics as normal and the give and take of democratic politics, where each side has legitimate views, and you have to kind of work out, you know, the owners of, of you know, brown coal mines, let's say in Saxony or something, you know, they say, we have interest too, we want to negotiate with the environmentalists, you know, it's, it's, it, that starts to get very difficult because you sort of think this is an existential ch- challenge. Like the other side's view is not legitimate. But, but again, I think that's really a dilemma of democracy. And, you know, my, you know, my bias again would be to say, you know, we have to try to use our normal democratic procedures and educate people and apply social pressure to try to change the terms of the debate, but that we can need to continue to abide by basic democratic uh, norms and procedures. So in your, broader research beyond also the book, but again, I think it also plays an important role in how democracies die. You focus a lot on conservative parties and their role for democracy, their potential role as a stabilizing force and a source of compromise that makes democracies survive and stabilize. Can you explain that in a little more detail to me, the role of conservative parties for democracy? Yeah, so I, I wrote a book in 2017, Conservative Parties and the Birth of Democracy, in which I was trying to understand how is it, why is it that over the course of the 19th and 20th centuries, especially in Europe, that democracy emerged in a kind of more uh, settled way where you had a kind of gradual process of franchise ex- extension and democratization. And in other countries, you had lots of constitutional interruptions where if there was a democratic breakthrough, there'd be a, a subsequent democratic, extreme democratic breakdown, kind of famously the interwar years were an example of that. But even going back to the 19th century, and one of the things that I kind of came in a way, despite my own maybe ideological predispositions, came to the conclusion that um, that 
in places where conservative parties for a variety of different reasons that I could elaborate. So that is the parties of, of, uh, generally the wealthy, initially the landed elites in the 19th century, um, but increasingly industrial elites as well, where they had, uh, uh, well-developed institutionalized party organization, where they were in a sense where they could serve as gatekeepers. I don't use that language in this, in this book. Um, they could compete for office and they wouldn't always win, but they could sometimes win and they could win often enough that they were willing to play the democratic game. And they won often enough that they could keep their most extremist elements, the kind of hardliners within their elements who are really vehemently anti-democratic, kind of at the margins of the party. Um, and so, um, I had in mind here, and one of the cases I looked at was, uh, Britain. Um, and so in a way, kind of came to this counterintuitive finding that in places where conservatives were well organized, the opponents of democracy could make their peace with democracy. It was, and it was in fact in places where conservatives didn't get themselves well organized politically to compete in electoral politics. I mean, they were often organized very well in other ways through bureaucracy, through the military, but where they, if they couldn't organize electorally, then they had much less commitment to the democratic game. Um, uh, and they also had a much more difficult time containing their own hardliners. And so it was much easier for, uh, extremist elements within these parties. And I think the prime example here is, is Germany in the late imperial period, uh, Weimar period as well. Uh, these kind of more extremist elements could take over the party because these were really loosely coupled, weakly institutionalized parties. And so again, it was in the places where conservatives were weak, where, where democracy was most vulnerable to, to kind of collapse ultimately. And so that, so, you know, the, again, the kind of counterintuitive finding that I came to that kind of despite again, my own kind of predilections was to sort of realize that, you know, in cases, at least the historical record seemed to suggest, that a kind of clean social democratic sweep or liberal sweep through the early late 19th, early 20th century didn't result in democratic stability. You know, maybe would for a short period, but it generated a backlash. And I kind of often think the history seems to move in these cycles of progress and backlash. And the question is, how can the backlash be contained? And I think having, uh, uh, all the elites buy into a democratic system through party organizations where they can win at least some of the time ends up leading to greater democratic uh, stability ultimately. I think it's really interesting because it reminds me of an argument that uh, some socialists made against the parliamentary road to socialism um, in, in this idea that if, if we, so the parliamentary road, the idea was if we expand uh, the suffrage to at least all men, then uh, so, uh, socialism or socialist parties would dominate. And so the, the fear on the other side was to say, well, if that happens, then conservative forces will never accept this. So if we start winning elections very clearly, uh, then uh, the, the old forces will, uh, will become violent and um, will not accept these elections. So in a way, they were right with that fear. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think in the end, though, of course, the socialists, as Adam Javorsky's book, Paper Stones, shows us, you know, had a much harder time ever winning majorities. I think, I think really what, what happened in the, in the kind of relative success cases, whereas conservatives in general, I mean, one of the things I kind of discover is that they tend to follow the same pattern, which is that they realize they were on the losing side of class conflict cleavage. And where they could successfully generate cross-cutting cleavages and become defenders of traditional religion or the nation, that they could uh, make appeals to – and Britain here is a great example of this – appeals to kind of – uh, nationalism and appeals to the uh, middle class, you know, some, you know, middle class, lower middle class voters. Uh, you know, it's hard to actually, when one looks at it, trying to get individual level data in the 19th century is difficult to say the least, but, you know, one can kind of get a sense that the conservatives were able to effectively do this. And so they could, they could win elections this way. And so, you know, and this would, you know, had I been alive at the time and been a liberal or a social democrat, I would have been frustrated and annoyed by this. But, I think nonetheless, as a kind of um, social scientific observation, it's pretty clear that ultimately this was probably – this led to more stability um, uh, for, for, the, for those cases. If we look at um, conservative parties today in Europe, I think it's fair to say that uh, at least some of them have shifted toward more – Authoritarian positions have embraced certain populist elements, certainly the case 
in Hungary and Poland, but also to a certain degree uh, in Austria or the UK, for example, at the moment. Would you say that these movements of conservative parties are a danger, a threat for democracy? Yeah, I think I, th I think they are. I mean, they they're, and they're dangerous. I guess I would say. I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, clearly, like things have gone. You know, the, the state of democracy is much worse in 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 Hungary than than either Austria or uh, Britain. Insofar as uh, the opposition can still potentially win uh, in Britain or Austria, um, whereas in Hungary that's further and more and more remote. Uh, so if you use that as the kind of basic benchmark, then clearly authoritarianism has, has proceeded much further in in uh, uh, Hungary. But nonetheless, I mean, wh whether these strategies are dangerous, I think there is a danger in them. I'm not sure if it'll lead to authoritarianism in, in either of these cases. But the danger is that by, um, I think that there's this kind of view, there are a lot of people, a lot of research looks at like, does does the existence of the kind of radical right uh, push center-right parties to adopt some of their rhetoric and so on. And I think this actually gets the whole causal story exactly backwards. I mean, I think more, more interesting in a way is the degree to which center-right parties' stances activate a radical right. Um, and that the kind of burden of responsibility lies with the most powerful parties in society, which are which are often the center right, which represent economic elites often and so on. And the radical right are sort of often taking advantage of openings provided by these mainstream parties. And so I think in the case of Austria and certainly the case of Britain, I mean, just quickly on that, I mean, Britain, the case of the British Tory party is a party that at some point decided it was useful to talk about Brexit or to talk about exiting the European Union, um, you know, sort of beginning with Margaret Thatcher at the end of the, um, in the early 90s. And so this kind of shift away uh, from a pro the pro-European stance of the of um, the British Conservative Party, where you kind of get the sense that that the Tory leaders were ambivalent. There were some people who were anti-EU, others who were not, and it was kind of ambivalence. But by talking about the issue for 20 years, they, in effect, kind of elevated the issue, raised the salience of the issue, and then never delivering on it provided an opening um, for, a, 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 you know, the emergence of a real anti-EU party that was it's a much greater threat and then ultimately forced the hand of the British Conservative Party. So that's sort of the way I regard this uh, process. And so I think one can see a similar thing uh, with regards to immigration, both uh, in Austria, especially in Austria, but to some degree in Germany as well. I mean, the CDU, um, although Angela, under Angela Merkel has, you know, taken a much softer stance on these things and welcomed the refugees, you know, for, for a long period through the 1990s, frequently repeated the line, you know, wir sind kein Einwanderungsland, you know, we're no country of immigration, raised the salience of this issue in voters' minds. Um, and then and then when Angela Merkel kind of turned away from this, created an opening. So I think the burden has to lay upon center-right politicians to not engage, to not engage in rhetoric in kind of reckless talk, I think, which which often changes the political contours and provides openings for more extremist parties. As these, you know, and again, I think I often think that CDU or the Tory Party or the Austrian Catholic Party. I mean, they often feel like they're navigating really difficult terrain and want to keep the extremists out. But I think in the effort to do that, they often make the situation worse. We are, of course, uh, less than two months away from the U.S. presidential election this November. So we have to talk a little bit uh, about the United States from the perspective uh, taken in how democracies die. And you've already mentioned Donald Trump a couple of times, of course. Let's focus on the Republican Party for a bit and the development of the Republican Party in maybe the last 20 years. Can you explain to us uh, in a couple of sentences what happened to the Republican Party? Well, the first thing that happened to the Republican Party is what we've witnessed is this incredible long-term process of radicalization, where it's essentially gone from being a relatively mainstream center-right party comparable to European center-right parties uh, to essentially uh, a radical right party. Uh, and what's what's so striking about this is, that, of course, this is in a two-party system uh, where there are no other center-right parties to kind of buffer against this. So so one of the two major parties has become a radical right party. So the big puzzle, of course, is how did this happen? I mean, this is, after all, the party of Abraham Lincoln, as, as uh, Republicans like to often say. 
um, or the party of Dwight Eisenhower. It, so this, so I guess I would, I would make two points. One, there's, as I've got, as a kind of theme for me here, uh, as I've said, you know, that throughout the history of the Republican Party, going back to the 30s and 40s, there has always been radical strands within the party. Um, and so, you know, you can think, of course, of Gold, Barry Goldwater in the 1960s, um, you know, through Nixon. Nixon was sort of casting himself as a moderate because there was kind of more right-wing elements. And so, and through uh, through Reagan up, up to the present, there's always been really right-wing elements. Um, the, the problem is that the kind of moderate elements have shrunk and disappeared and exited at the party. And so that's partly what explains, you know, that the high per- approval ratings for Donald Trump today. So, so the first point I would make is that that's always there. So that the transformation is less one of like a, you know, a radical departure from the past and more a story of one side getting the upper hand. And so the question then becomes the second point then is, well, how did that happen? Um, and I, and I think one of the more convinced, I guess there's, I guess, that the way the shorthand ver- you'd ask me for a short answer to this, I'm giving you a long answer. But the sh- the, sh- the short answer, because there's a lot of history, is the big shift came, um, in my view, with the passage of the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act in 1964, 1965, um, under Lyndon Johnson, which expanded the right to vote to African Americans and civil uh, rights protections as well. Um, and this launched this major realignment of the American Party system, where Previously, you essentially had had a four-party system where you had conservative Democrats, liberal Democrats, conservative Republicans, liberal Republicans, where all sorts of compromises and so on were possible. After 1964-65, what happened is that the Southern Democrats, who had been the conservative Democrats, uh, ran to the Republican Party and joined up with the Republican Party. Uh, uh, maybe a slow walk to the Republican Party, I would say, because it was really not until the 1980s that this process was complete. Um, African Americans ended up in the Democratic Party. Um, and, uh, this also coincided with a major kind of Im- swing of immigration in the mid sixties, major immigration reform who ended up in the Democratic Party. And then, uh, finally, uh, the fourth thing that happened was the evangelical Christians, uh, who had been split between the two parties ended up in the Republican Party. So by the time you got to the 1990s, and especially by today, you have two very different parties. You have one party that's a kind of rainbow coalition party, the Democratic Party, very diverse party, ethnically, um, uh, urban, suburban, et cetera. Um, and then you have a Republican Party, which is an incredibly homogeneous 90% white party. Um, and, you know, so one view of this, I mean, my own personal view of this is part of this has been driven by increasing economic inequality and the shift to kind of these issues of identity to, to help kind of defend this party. Um, but I think a major part of the story is this perception of demographic threat. And when you have a political party system that's so demographically divided, when a party views itself as a kind of on the shrinking end of a new demographic divide, it starts to resort to more extremist uh, uh, rhetoric. And that's kind of what we've begun to see. So so I think that's this kind of major demographic shift sparked by the realignment of the parties is kind of one of the prime culprits in driving this. Mm. One thing I always notice when observing U.S. politics it seems striking to me is um, this strong zero-sum logic of politics. And I think this is something that's probably changed when I think of this notion of the, the Senate as this great deliberative body. Looking at U.S. politics now, really, it seems to me that everyone's convinced one side wins, the other side loses. There's nothing in between. There's no state of the world that's that's better for everyone. And then again, this seems to me to justify to many people moves that go against basic democratic institutions or free media because really they're so convinced of we have to win, otherwise we lose and there is nothing in between. Yeah, that's. I think you're, you're absolutely right. And I think, that, you know, just in the lead up to the election, I mean, what's, what's so frightening is that both sides view a victory by the other side as absolutely a cataclysm and both sides feel incredibly confident that they're going to win. So, you know, although being very nervous that they might, you know, waking up in the middle of the night that they might not win. So, you know, that's, those are the ingredients for not a very good situation. And, and so what, what has given rise to this kind of zero sum logic that you correctly point to? Um, I think, 
uh, one thing is, I mean, of course, this is built in the two-party system, but what's, what's I think, shifted really is this shift away from a four-party system. American political parties as two parties have throughout history been highly, like, you know, essentially umbrella organizations for very diverse coalitions where you really had a four-party system. And I think our political system, the divided government, you know, the staggered elections, you know, the fact that you have Senate, not the Senate's not all elected at one point, you know, there's, there's rotating elections in the Senate, you, they're not happening, you have congressional elections taking place, you know, in non-presidential years. And so you, ha- you have all of, of course, this kind of fragmentation built into the party system. And so and into the Constitution, rather. And so constitutionally, in order for the system to work, not only do you need these norms that I've talked about, but it's possible that what we really need is multiple parties in order to, and that's what we had until uh, really, you know, the 1980s, essentially, where you had you had all the possibility of coalitions being formed, congressional uh, kind of coalitions to pass legislation between conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans, for instance, you know, where you would have, uh, you know, kind of cross-party coalitions, and so major legislation could get passed. What's happened with the polarization of American politics, driven partly by these demographic uh, uh, kind of factors that I've already talked about, is that you now really have a two-party system. And it turns out, I think, our constitutional structure can't really handle a two-party system. And so that there's at people now, you know, that's why there's a lot of reforms kind of calling for the introduction of ranked order voting or some proportional voting at the state level to try to recreate the kind of uh, mash of the 1950s where it was, you know, previously people used to complain, a wonderful book, um, by uh, Rosenfeld, Sam Rosenfeld, called the Polarizers, in which in the 1950s, political scientists and there was a political sci- American political science uh, commit special committee, you know, where people were distraught about the fact that all the parties looked the same. The two parties looked the same. You couldn't tell them apart. And so, what we, what we need is really two clear, very two clear options. You know, like the British have. You know, I mean, was, at the time, they sort of people were looking jealously at the Tories and the Labour Party. And so those reformers got their way, and the result has been a total disaster. Mm. Can you briefly say why you said four-party system in the U.S.? So for a four-party system in that you had, you had conservative Democrats um, ba- based in the South. You had liberal Democrats often based in the Northeast. Um, you had, so the pro, the Southern Democrats were pro-segregationist, anti-labor Democrats. I mean, these were people who were often opposed to labor unions and were against integration and against, uh, that is, that is, you know, was, were in favor of racial segregation. Uh, you then had, uh, liberal Republicans, again, often in the Northeast. You can think of Nelson Rockefeller, the governor of New York. In the, in the 50s and 60s. Um, and you had very conservative Republicans, anti-labor Republicans, like often based in the Midwest, based in Ohio. But so, so these parties were often geographically. So, so you had, you know, in the U.S. Senate, you would have had, if you looked at, you know, the, the makeup of the U.S. senators in the U.S. Senate in the 50s and 60s, the Republican Senate, you would have had, uh, some liberal Republicans who agreed more with their liberal democratic counterparts than their conservative counterparts from the Midwest, and especially so within the Democratic Party, where you had segregationist, uh, very cons- economically conservative Democrats, um, who d- agreed much more with the kind of Midwestern Republicans on economic questions than, than their liberal democratic partners. So you really had within the two parties, you had these four different factions, which allowed for, for lots of, and so when you look at data, from the 50s and 60s and look at the amount of polarization and roll call voting, what you see is there was a lot more crossing of party lines and it kind of made sense. If you're a, if you're a, uh, kind of, uh, Democrat, liberal Democrat, and you want to, you know, pass some kind of legislation on an economic question or on racial equality question. If you look at the passage of the Civil Rights Bill and the Voting Rights Act of 1964-65, you actually had lots of liberal Republicans voting for this. And so this kind of cross party alliances was possible or it's not possible today. Would you agree that the re-election of Donald Trump would constitute a serious threat to American liberal democracy? So much so that I have a hard time thinking that it's going to happen, I have to admit. Um, but yes, I do. Uh, I mean, for multiple reasons. One, I think his his abuse of office, will, which has already escalated in the last year since his the failed impeachment against him would only accelerate. Um, so his hollowing out of the state, 
his willingness to attack the media and neutral institutions, all of those kind of hallmarks of of um of democratic decay that we describe in how democracies die would only proceed. I mean, there's been lots of pushback until now, but it's much harder to have that same kind of pushback uh, with the kind of mantle of a reelection. Um, I think so. So in that sense, just the damage he would do and his administration would do would be, would be remarkable and, and very worrying. But I also think that the, the kind of degree of polarization and the democratic opposition would, you know, I don't, I don't quite know how Democrats would react to this. I mean, I think Democrat, there would be a real perception. I mean, especially if he wins through the electoral college, but with not, without gaining popular vote. I mean, I don't think there's anybody who actually, I mean, there's, you know, you know, some people think he can win the electoral college, but I, you know, nobody thinks he can win a majority of the popular vote. I mean, that's, there's no models in which that happens. And so if he wins, he'll win once again through the electoral college without popular, without a popular mandate. Now, of course, that's constitutional. That's how the system works. So people have to accept that. But there is a real, there will be a real legitimacy crisis, I think, in the American political system where, um, the court will be picked by somebody who's not won a popular vote two times in a row. Um, the Senate, if the Republicans retake the Senate, similarly, there'll be more votes for Democrats likely and nonetheless Republicans take retake the Senate given the way that sparsely populated areas are over overrepresented. And so I think there would be a real legitimacy crisis. So this would be the second phase of the crisis, I would say. Hmm. One final question for you to speculate a little bit. Let's say Donald Trump loses and accepts the result. What do you think is going to happen to the Republican Party, especially as you've now mentioned? Um, I think the only time then that the Republicans would have won the popular vote is 2004 in the last then over 30 years, right? 1988 and, and, and 2004. Um, so what do you think would happen to the Republican Party? Well, according to theory, according to theory that you and I know in political science, I mean, the only way that politicians change and political parties change is by losing. I mean, we sort of can have a market metaphor. You know, if you're a firm and you're going out of business and nobody shows up to your shop, you, ch you change what you sell, right? Or you change locations or you do something different. Similarly, I think Republicans, I mean, the hope is that by losing repeatedly, really badly, that they will change tracks. Um, so I think ultimately that will happen. The, the concern I have is that it may not happen soon enough. Um, because in a lot of ways you can think of, given all of the constitutional protections that are unintentionally in place to help Republicans, I mean, in the sense that you can re gain a lot of seats in the Senate, although not winning many votes because they tend to are, have overrepresented over by rural areas, given how well a Republican president can do in the electoral college without, you know, winning a majority of votes. There are all of these crutches in place or kind of boosts and artificial boosts in place. Um, Uh, from which they benefit, which reduce the incentive to adapt and change. So even if they lose, if they just lose barely, then there's sort of a sense, oh, well, we almost had it. You know, maybe we need to double down on our, on our ideology. Uh, and, and looking back at the, um, at the kind of Weimar example from my book on conservative parties, one of the things that I've noticed is that conservative parties, once they enter this kind of spiral, maybe may all parties, You know, the outside observer thinks, well, they ought to learn the right lesson of, of losing and reform. But that presumes that you learn the right lesson and that, uh, you ought, that parties often, uh, when they lose, the only people left are the extremists and they misinterpret the loss. They think that the loss is due to the fact that they weren't authentic enough or pure enough. And so there's always that danger that I think at least for a couple of rounds that rather than moderating, the Republican Party becomes even more recalcitrant. Um, I mean, I hope that doesn't happen, but I, I, I could see that happening. Yeah, I guess with this uh, not too optimistic outlook, we're already coming to an end of the podcast. There's one final question that I always ask uh, the participants, and that is for reading recommendations. One political science piece, book, article, and one uh, that is not political science, maybe a piece of fiction. Yeah, so... Um, One, the, the political science actually worked by a sociologist. I hope that counts too. Uh, wonderful book, uh, by Paul Starr, a sociologist from Princeton called Entrenchment, Wealth, Power, and the Constitution of Democratic Societies, in which he, uh, looks at the, at the kind of development of how, how institutions and rules, uh, get entrenched over the long haul. 
you know, so we often focus on how institutions get adopted, the right appropriate optimal institutions get adopted. But the question is, what, how do they, under what conditions do they endure? So he looks actually at slavery, negative institutions, aristocratic power, and then also democratic institutions. And he sort of, I mean, it's sort of way, it really fits my, I mean, part of the reason I think I like this book so much is it kind of fits my view of history as kind of often moving in cycles of progressive movement and then reaction. And so the real question often is, you know, since reaction uh, and counter-reactions often almost seems almost inevitable, how do you create institutions that endure in the face of that? And so that's that's what's described in this wonderful book, Entrenchment. Uh, a second very long book uh, that I'm just in the beginning of reading, um, I'm afraid I'm not going to say his name. He's a Danish a Nobel Prize winning author from 1905, which I guess has just only been translated into English in 2018. A Fortunate Man by Henrik Pontopidian, um, who, uh, who won the Nobel Prize in 1905. And then it's, it's, it, I kind of came to my attention, I guess, through a friend of mine, Dan Slater, who said it reminded him of Thomas Mann. And I love Thomas Mann. So he, I started reading it and I'm just in the beginning of it. Kind of profiles the, the 19, the life of a 19th century modernizer, uh, in, in Denmark, um, and the kind of rise of liberalism in a way. So although it's a work of fiction, it kind of appeals to my historical, comparative historical, uh, roots in political science. Great. Thank you so much, Daniel. I've really learned a lot in this conversation. Um, and thanks everyone for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast.